All right, can you guys hear me? Look at that, regenerated. That was, that was my fault because I kept my microphone on all between services. The sound guys were really glad the, the battery went out because they were listening to me sing the whole second service going, when is this thing going to die? And uh, so, anyways. Why don't we turn our Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. If you'd like to use one of the Pew Bibles in front of you, you'll find the reading on page 774. I'm not going to read it again for us because Bob did such a good job of reading. I think Bob should probably record an audio Bible, as is my opinion. That might be his gifting. could have him record an audio Bible and put it in the cafe for us. But um, Jonah chapter 2, 774, and we'll bow and pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you have revealed yourself to us in such a way that you search and know the thoughts and intentions of our hearts through your word and by your spirit. And it's our prayer this morning that as we read and study the letter or the, the book of Jonah together, that you would examine us and reveal to us our idolatry, that you would grant us repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, that you would transform us more and more into the image of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most devastating things that I can estimate about our human nature is that we seldom realize how powerless our idols are to save us. Makes me think of a friend of mine who serves in Japan as a missionary with Send International. He recently went there full-time with his family, but before he moved there, he went on several trips just to sort of scout things out, to get a lay of the land, to begin to get a sense of what life there would be like. And one of his visits was in 2011, right after a massive tsunami devastated the nation. And he was sharing with me about how at one point he was walking around a village with his uh, friends and with his family, and he came upon a shrine. The shrine at its very center was, being, uh, was serving as the home of an idol, a little g-god that was placed there ostensibly to protect the people of Japan from the, ongo or from the oncoming wave. But here, a couple of weeks after the tsunami had hit, the shrine was devastated and destroyed, and the idol was lying flat on its face, absolutely powerless to save. And I think that that imagery of a devastated shrine, an idol on its face, is a fitting symbol, really, of what happens to Jonah in Jonah chapter 2. Because what we find as we turn to this passage of Scripture is that Jonah himself finds his idols destroyed under the weight of the waves of God's discipline. On the one hand, this image of an idol lying flat on its face is helpful for us as we approach Jonah chapter 2, but on the other hand, it's, it's almost sort of deflecting. 
Because there's a danger for all of us this morning to conceive of idols only as those sorts of images of gods that men and women create and bow down before. All the while, neglecting to reckon with the fact that each and every one of us, whether we're an unbeliever or a committed follower of Jesus this morning, every one of us deals with the issue of idolatry. That idolatry is the problem in Jonah 2 is very clear from verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. In other words, those who love their idols find, one way or another, that their idols will never love them in return. And we have to think for a second about what idolatry actually is, or we'll never even really begin to think of Jonah as an idolater. I mean, after all, Jonah is a prophet. He's an Israelite. This is a man that you would find in church regularly. But Jonah's idolatry lies in the fact that rather than worshiping and bowing before the God of the Bible, he chooses to construct for himself a God other than the God revealed in the Bible. Voltaire said long ago that God has created man in His own image, and ever since, we've been trying to repay the favor. God knows, or rather, Jonah knows exactly who God is. Chapter 4, verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, this is so like You. To be a God that's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, and if I may... I've had just about enough of it. Jonah's God is not the God of the Bible. He worships an idol, a God that only blesses Israel and leaves the rest of the world to perish in their sin. Idolatry, friends, simply defined as anything, anything at all, even an incorrect view of God that we raise to ultimate significance in our lives anything, even God's good gifts. Now, it'll be easy for you to look at me and my life and identify where my idols are in the same way that it'll be easy for me to look at you and identify where your idols are. The problem is, is we're so often blind to our own idols. And we think about it just for a moment in our culture here, specifically Western Pennsylvania, what are the areas of idolatry that all of us are susceptible to? I mean, I think a moment of honest reflection reveals that family life, the family unit itself, tends to be an object of idolatry, a place where I put my ultimate significance and love and sense of belonging. It's not hard to realize that sport, call it what it is, is an idol in our culture. Very easily forsaking Walking with Jesus, turning up at corporate worship, because after all, there are games to be played. Sports. For another, not common, or, or not limited only to our area, but this sort of idea that I call the sovereignty of the self. The idea that I am the master of my own ship, I am the one who will say what goes on, and you will not in any way infringe upon my right to be self-autonomous. These are sorts of the things that we raise up to an 
elevated status, placing them above the Lord as the object of our affection. And if you think about being harsh, the only thing that you need to do is for a moment, imagine all three of those things taken from you. How do you react? That's how you know where your idols are. When they're taken away from you, can you make it? Jonah here, the Israelite, the good preacher boy, goes through a sort of death and resurrection as it relates to his own idolatry. If you look at the passage in front of us, it's very simple to sort of sort out the structure of the passage in chapter 1, verse 17. Jonah has been thrown into the sea and he's swallowed by a great fish. In chapter 2, verse 10, in one of the most disgusting verses in all of Scripture, Jonah is then vomited out upon dry land from the belly of the fish. And in between the swallowing and the vomiting is this amazing prayer of deliverance. As Jonah tells us very simply in verses 2 through 6 of chapter 2, that idols bring death, and that in verses 7 through 9, the Lord brings life. And in all of this, Jonah means to tell us very simply, here's the good news, we've already addressed the bad news, we're all idolaters. The good news of the gospel is this, that the Lord delights. He delights to show steadfast love and mercy to those who will turn away from idols and to Him in repentance and faith. Simply stated, salvation belongs to the Lord. Here Jonah discovers that firsthand. Now, before we even get into the prayer, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, just a word about the great fish that's in the room. You know, there are some of us who will read this passage and go, oh my goodness, I mean... I'm a sensible, you know, 21st century person. There's absolutely no way that you could expect me to believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish and was in his belly for three days and three nights. There is this wonderful passage in C.S. Lewis' um, novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many of you will have read it. And you'll know that the way that the story goes is that the two younger children, they go by way of a wardrobe to this magical world called Narnia, They come back and they tell their older siblings, Peter and Susan, about all that they've experienced, all that they've seen, this magical new world. And Peter and Susan know for a fact, after all, they're sensible, modern people, that this couldn't possibly be true. So they approach an academic, a professor, to tell him about this amazing story that their siblings have told and to ask advice about what they're supposed to do in light of it. And the professor says something rather (laughs) profound to them. He says, How do you know that your sister's story is not true? How do you know? Then he says, logic, half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it is obvious that she is not mad. For the moment then, unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. We believe at First Baptist Church that the Bible is God's Word, that this is God who speaks. We know that God cannot lie. We know that God is not mad. Therefore, by faith, we take God's Word as God's Word. Tim Keller, another pastor, writes in his book, The Prodigal Prophet, how you respond to this, the fish and Jonah, will depend on how you read the rest of the Bible. 
If you accept the existence of God and the resurrection of Christ, which is a far greater miracle, then there is nothing particularly difficult about reading Jonah literally. Certainly, many people today believe all miracles are impossible, but that skepticism is just that, a belief that cannot be proven. In other words, you say to me, I don't believe miracles can happen. I say, prove it. You can't. We're back to Jonah chapter 2. All right? And if that's not good enough for you, you can believe the words of John Jurgen, who once said, Jonah 2 is not all that unbelievable. It's not like Jonah swallowed the fish. So there you have it from John Jurgen. Always a comic relief and brilliantly argued. So now we've cleared the way for us to see ourselves in Jonah. Number one, idolatry brings death. Verses 2 through 6. Look at me with this. As Jonah prays, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Distress. Now, Jonah 2 is really a psalm. You can see that as you look at the way that the text is structured. It, it reads like a poem. And all throughout the Psalms, we find the psalmists routinely crying out from their distress. Psalm 18:6. In my distress. I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From His temple He heard my voice, and my cry to Him reached His ears. There David is praying for deliverance from his enemies. Psalm 120, verse 1, In my distress I called to the Lord, and He answered me. There the psalmist is being attacked and slandered, and out of his distress he cries to the Lord. Here, as the just desert of being an idolater tumbles over Jonah again and again, he calls out to the Lord, out of my distress. Now what I want you to see here is that the distress is directly linked to having an inappropriate object of worship. There's a direct correspondence. He's in distress because his worship is entirely out of whack. And this distress is multi-layered. It's complex. If you look at the passage with me at the, the most basic level, his distress comes from the fact that he's physically drowning. Here's a man who is on the brink of drowning. I mean, we tend to use the language that Jonah uses figuratively. He says in verse 3, you cast me into the deep. We say to one another from time to time, you know, I feel like I'm drowning in debt. I've got so much to do in my, my planner. I just feel like I'm drowning. But here Jonah says, literally, I, I'm, I'm in the deep, in the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. Waves and billows passed over me, verse 3. Verse 5, the waters closed in, the deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped about my head. Just a terrible image of Jonah in the sea. But I want you to see Jonah's theology here because his theology is brilliant. He says at one level, sure, I was the one who came up with the idea to be thrown overboard. At another level, yes, the mariners are the ones who actually cast me over. But, verse 3, you, Lord, you cast me into the deep. His distress directly related to the fact that his object of worship is inappropriate. 
but also directly linked to the fact that the God of the Bible loves His people too much to allow us to go on in foolish worship of false gods. God threw Him in. God's pursuing Jonah. Where can I flee from your presence? Nowhere. At another level, Jonah's distress revolves not only around the fact that he's drowning, but that he's at the very brink of death. These two things are related. You can understand that. But he says in verse 2, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. That's the Old Testament equivalent almost to hell. It's the abode of the dead. Jonah's saying, I'm at the very brink here. I'm about to lose my life. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Verse 5, more explicitly, the waters closed in over me to take my life. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He pictures the bottom of the sea almost as a jail cell. He's about to perish. But the third layer of his distress, the most important layer of his distress, the most uh, relevant and applicable layer of his distress, comes in verse 4. It's not only that he's drowning, it's not only that he's at the brink of death, most importantly, it's that he is experiencing broken fellowship with his God. Then I said, as he's drowning, I am driven away from your sight. Now this is always the punishment for sin. If you like, the, the Lord says to us in our foolish sin and idolatry, you better be careful what you wish for because you might just get it. I and mean, if you're a thinking person, you're thinking about Jonah as a whole, especially in light of last week, the thing that Jonah wants more than anything else is to be away from the presence of the Lord. That's what he's about. That's, Char- that's Tarshish. That's the, the Mariners. That's the Joppa. That's the whole deal. And the language there in chapter 1 of presence in Hebrew, it means face. His mission is to flee from the face, the sight of God. Is there anywhere, Jonah says, I can go to just get out of the Lord's line of sight? He begins to go down and further down and further down and further down until he's cast into the sea. And now in verse 4, understand this. The very thing he's wanted from the beginning of the story, he's finally gotten it, and it's more than he can even bear. That's idolatry. The very moment that we latch on to the God that we desire, we at the same time separate ourselves from the actual God, the true God, the real God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. No false God is ever enough. You know, I, I, I never forget hearing an interview with Chris Brown, who's an R&B singer. He's talking about how you know, he thought he had found the meaning of life because he said the meaning of life is love. And he says, you know, I used to think the meaning of life was money, but once you have a million, you want three million. Once you have three million, you want ten million. I used to think it was about accumulating cars. You buy one, you want two. You got two, you want three. You got a 10,000 square foot house, now I want a 30,000 square foot house. That's how idolatry works. 
Because I've been driven away from your sight. The only true God, the only one who actually satisfies, the only one who can deal with my sin issue, the only one who's worthy of my praise and my affection, the only one who can bear up under the weight of all of me. Been driven from your sight. Cherubim guarding the garden. Adam and Eve cast out in shame. Here, Jonah. I've been driven away from your sight. I've gotten the very thing that I wanted, that I've always wanted, and it's far more than I can even bear. But here's the wonder of the gospel, okay? Here, here, here is where the gospel becomes real and powerful. That the very moment that Jonah realizes that he has turned away from the Lord, when he's come to his senses, I've driven, driven from your sight, at that very moment, that's the moment when he's able, by grace, to turn to the Lord and receive mercy and compassion. J. Sklar, a commentator on Jonah, Jonah experiences the truth that it is never too late to lift his eyes to a God so rich in mercy and love. Here's the first step. You and I have got to understand how idolatrous we really are. Because until we've gotten there, until we've felt the judgment of God upon our idols, we'll never turn to Him for mercy. Jonah feels that judgment. He turns to the Lord in mercy. And secondly, he finds out that the Lord brings life. Here he is in the depth of the sea, Verse 7, when my life was fainting away. That is where idols always leave you. When my life was fainting away, when this God that I've constructed in my own image, a God who refuses to show compassion, when that was my God, I died. Because that God cannot save. That God will not save. So let's bring it down for a moment. And let's just be real with one another and understand that our families cannot save us. The family is a wonderful gift from the Lord. Absolutely. But families are not the Lord. Families will give us a certain degree of love and acceptance and and being known, but every one of us knows that ultimately at some point, that human dynamic breaks down. We love conditionally. What's more, our whole attitude of sort of self-autonomy, the sovereignty of self, my way, at my time, don't infringe on my rights, you do understand that 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 sort of notion is normally what gets us in trouble in the first place. So how in the world is it ever going to get us out of trouble? It's idolatry. Our addictions can't save us. No one has found hope at the bottom of an empty bottle of whiskey. No one has ever found hope by clicking again on that link on the internet. No one has found hope by doubling down again the poker table. No one. See, here's the thing about idols. Idols demand everything of you and give you nothing in return. You have to continue to feed the idol, serve the idol, worship the idol, and there's nothing left to show for it. And so Jonah's very clear and precise diagnosis of the problem is those who pay regard to, those who worship, 
vain idols. The Hebrew there is empty nothings. Those who worship empty nothings, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. Idols can't show you steadfast love. They do not save. They will not save. They cannot save. But in this moment, as he turns back to the Lord, something profound happens. God, in his infinite wisdom, provides a fish to bring Jonah up out of the water to save him in such a way that Jonah's cry is now, salvation belongs to the Lord. Is there a God who can save us? Wasn't that the question that the mariners asked? There's got to be a God out there who can save us. Jonah finds himself just as idolatrous, just as clueless as they were until now. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation in the Old Testament almost always is framed out in this sort of physical way. You think of um, the Israelites, they're they're saved from Egypt physically, earthly, freed from bondage. You think of Jonah here in the sea, physically saved from the danger of drowning. You think of Israel in the exile, saved physically in the return to their land. But all of those sorts of earthly, physical, temporal salvations are pointing forward ultimately to the greatest work of God in salvation history when Jesus goes to the cross for people who refuse to worship Him. God puts on flesh for people who refuse to worship Him. For people who fall in love with, as we call them, lovers less wild. For idolaters, for spiritual adulterers and adulteresses, Jesus goes to the cross to show His worth. To show how immensely valuable He is. He is the gift above all gifts. There's nothing, no one in all of the universe that comes even remotely close to the joy and the beauty and the glory of knowing Jesus Christ. And He lays down His life as an offering for sin and rises again. And what does He say when the Pharisees come and challenge Him in Matthew 12? He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, Jonah... Jonah experiences this sort of death and resurrection. He dies, if you will, in the water, dies to his self, dies to his idols, and he's vomited back up on dry ground with a new lease on life, a new purpose in life, a new object of worship. And the only reason that that's true, the only reason that that can happen in the life of Jonah and everyone like him, that's you and me, is that Jesus dies a very real death on the cross and experiences a very real resurrection from the grave to defeat our idolatry so that we could be made new. This is what it means to be a Christian. Paul frames this out for the Thessalonians as he writes them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, For they themselves, the world... The world reports concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to, uh, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us 
from the wrath to come? Here's really the ultimate question. On that day, what will your gods do for you? On that day when justice is served, where will your, will your gods be? And one of the amazing things about the story of the Exodus is that every plague that the Lord brings upon Egypt is a plague against one of the Egyptian gods. As if to say, I am greater, I am more powerful, I am more glorious. These gods don't exist. But I will be magnified in all of the earth. So where will our gods be on that day? Will our self-sovereignty save us? No. Will our personal autonomy save us? No. Will our favorite sporting team save us? No. Will our achievements save us? No. Will human approval save us? No. Will our addiction save us? And on and on we go. There is one Savior. And His name is Jesus. And you know what's so wonderful about my God? Is that He delights to show steadfast love and mercy to idolaters like me when I turn from them and to Him. I receive forgiveness, hope, steadfast love, and finally, someone who can bear up under the weight of my sincerest devotion. Do you worship this God? Let me ask you this question. What prevents you this morning? Believer, unbeliever alike, what prevents you this morning from crying out to the Lord and confessing your idolatry? Confessing to yourself and to the people around Jesus is Lord. What prevents you from doing that? What prevents you from confessing the sin of trying to find satisfaction in things that don't satisfy? That's sin. There's good news in that in and of itself. The Lord wants you to be satisfied in Him. So what prevents you from crying out to Him, Lord, I'm an, an idolater and I need Your mercy. What prevents you? Today is the day of salvation. You turn to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the way in which You gently reveal to us that we so often give our hearts and our souls to things that are lesser than you. That we call gods those things that you have created or things that don't even exist. Our hearts are so bent in on themselves that we often even take the good gifts that you give us and we elevate them to make them ultimate things. We thank You that Jesus in His goodness and His kindness went to the cross for those who didn't worship Him to win back for You those who will worship You alone in spirit and in truth. And so we pray that in truth 
You would deal with each of our hearts. You would help us to recognize the sin of idolatry and to turn to You in repentance and faith and to find that You are so abundantly merciful that when we do so, we find steadfast love, mercy, grace, and compassion awaiting us instead of shame, guilt, and condemnation. Lord, You are the God who saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us?